0: Welcome to the and Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Tarangapta, and our guest today is John Passon. John is a fintech industry veteran with over eight years of experience at PayPal and American Express. He founded Maxwell in 2015 after being frustrated with the mortgage process and set about to modernize and inject transparency, equity, and efficiency into the mortgage process to help lenders build better, faster, and cheaper loans for all. John has a B.A. from Taylor University and an MBA from Duke University. Join us as we explore the complexities of the mortgage industry in the U.S., why John decided to focus on small to mid-sized lenders, John's decision to enter the secondary market for mortgage loans, the rising startup ecosystem in Denver, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, John. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, John. Thank you. So, where are you from?
1: We are uh, here in Denver, Colorado. You know, we started the company in the Bay Area, and very early on had the opportunity to go through TechStars Boulder, and came out here and fell in love with the city. Found a really hopping uh, tech scene here, and said, "Let's build the company here." And so uh, moved the family out, moved uh, moved some employees out, and
0: here we are. Awesome. Do you like Denver as a city?
1: It's great. It's uh, it's continued to grow and evolve. Um, obviously. We've imported other immigrants from from the coast uh, that uh, are looking to get out of high cost cities, uh, and um, yeah, it's been great. In fact, today I was just—I uh, mean, it's sad, but I, I was just—we had a—we had our first snow, and there was a hundred car pileup uh, today on the highways. Now, typically, your first snow, you don't get hundred car pileups, but I have to imagine—you uh, know—there were some people involved in that that are new to Colorado, new to driving in the snow, and uh, um, didn't know how to take it easy.
0: All right, let's dive right into the questions now. For our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech?
1: Sure. So, you know, I've been in the uh, financial services world for over 20 years now, started in investment banking and private wealth. And then after uh, my MBA, joined American Express and spent six, seven years with Amex, um, mostly on the consumer side of the business. Uh, and then uh, I was in New York and then London. And after that, joined uh, PayPal. I moved out to the Bay Area where I led corporate strategy teams for the North America business, the payments business, and the credit business. And uh, it was while I was at PayPal that you know, I was getting my fourth mortgage at the time. And we will get into this story later, but it was such a horrendous process. Uh, here we are seven years later uh, with a Series B startup.
0: So you worked at Amex and PayPal, as you said. Can you talk to me a bit about the how the culture and the outlook towards industry differ between these two organizations? Absolutely.
1: So, you know, Amex was a 175-year-old company. So, uh, you know, they had started as a Pony Express, right, delivering packages. So, you know, we talk about pivots uh, in the startup world. That was their startup journey, going from uh, delivering packages on ponies to now a global financial brand. But over 175 years. And so I think, you know, they had figured out a lot of things uh, and how to do them well. Um, Obviously, they were a much slower-moving aircraft carrier uh, than, than a startup, but they took their time. They were diligent. You know, I think my, my biggest leadership lessons happened in American express. I, I was fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your perspective to, to uh, be at Amex all the way through the, the, um, you know, financial crisis. And, uh, I joined in 07 and was there all the way through 2013, um, you know, lived through six rounds of layoffs, got to see how, you know, really experienced business leaders led their teams through that. Um, And then PayPal, you know, when I was there, it was a 12, 13-year-old company, Um, a little bit like a 12 or 13-year-old boy, right? Doesn't know what it wants to be when he grows up. Um, Do we be a bank? Do we not be a bank? And uh, still trying to figure out, fit in its clothes, determine what is their identity here, Um, morphing, changing, growing, maturing, Um, trying to figure out, am I a man? Am I a boy? I want to move fast like a boy, but I got to have performance reviews like a man, what do I do? And, and you know, it was a 12,000 person company that you, know, you could see the CEO really wanted it to act like a startup and used to wear these T-shirts that said GSD, get shit done. That was his like motto because he just felt like, man, this company is 12,000 people. It's so slow. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And uh, it, it was really interesting also from a leadership perspective just to see an organization at that stage of its, of its life.
0: I'm 26 and I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. So <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> So let's talk about Maxwell. What is Maxwell and what products and services do you offer? Yeah.
1: So if you think about the mortgage industry today, and that's the industry we serve, there's uh, 20,000 mortgage lending institutions in the United States. Uh, it's, it's one of the most fragmented markets in the world. And uh, th- that's made up of community banks, credit unions, independent mortgage banks. And so those are the clients we serve, what we call them community lenders. They represent about... Half to 75% of the market today, um, these small to mid sized lenders that are originating loans. And so we provide a platform for them that provides software capabilities uh, to uh, provide a great borrower experience, to automate part of the mortgage process. We then provide back office capabilities. So processing, underwriting, closing uh, services for them. And then we provide access to capital because many of them are so small they can't sell to uh, uh, the buyers, the loan buyers, that would give them the best price, and so we act as an intermediary. We're able to buy and trade those loans on their behalf, and so those are really the three pillars of what we do. We power them with software, with capabilities, and with capital. Uh, you know, I think one of the best analogies for Maxwell is is Shopify in many ways, right? If you look at what Shopify has done for merchants, right, it provides the digital experience, it provides the back office inventory picking, packing, shipping.
0: Could you break down the mortgage lending industry for our listeners? Like who are the key players? What's the market size? What are some challenges and opportunities facing this market?
1: That that was one of the most uh, interesting things to me as an entrepreneur was looking and seeing this enormous market, right? Anywhere from three to four trillion dollars a year in volume pumping through this market. And it was it was done in a market that was incredibly fragmented, right? If you had asked me before I knew much about the mortgage market, what it looked like, I would have said, Hey, well, doesn't Wells Fargo just do all the loans in America? Well, Wells Fargo's market share is 2%, 2%, right? And so um, if you look over history, Wells Fargo shrunk from about 25% of the market to 2% of the market. Chase went from 15% to under 2%, 1.5%. right? Jamie Dimon in, I think, 2016 in his shareholder letter said, I don't want to be in the mortgage business anymore. I have to be because I want to be all things to all people for my customers, but it's, it's a crappy business and I don't want to be in it. And so what's happened over the last... Couple decades is just this explosion in independent mortgage banks. So these are monoline non non bank institutions, right? They don't have a balance sheet. They originate the loan, they fund it on a warehouse line, and then they sell it um, very quickly after they they originate the loan. And so that's just exploded this whole new business model, really, over the last period. That's taken great share alongside of credit unions and community banks. And so today, as I mentioned earlier, it's about twenty thousand of those institutions in the United States today. Um, And very few have, you know, more than a fraction of the market. Uh, And so that creates really interesting market dynamics for, I think, software platforms, right, where we can um, start to really power their business and give them something they can't get on their own, which is scale and access to economies of scale.
0: What motivated or inspired you to focus on this particular market? Like, did you have a personal connect to this market or, or what inspired you? And the second part to that question is why did you pick the B2B segment? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, I was uh, in 2014, I was
1: at PayPal. I was getting my fourth mortgage at the time. Um, and it was one of the most horrendous experiences that I've ever had in a financial transaction. It took 68 days to close. The bank, who I won't name, uh, missed the closing deadline. Uh, and so we had to renegotiate the contract with the seller. They had moving trucks showing up, they had kids in school, right? It just created this whole personal mess. And I remember calling. My loan officer was helpless. He's like, I don't know what's happening with the loan. I don't know where it is. Nobody I could reach at the bank could explain what was happening with the loan. Is it something I did? What's going on? It was just bad process. And I was so pissed off. I ended up speaking to something like um, you know several hundred people in the mortgage industry over 90 days, just saying, why is this so bad? And I just started to get more and more intrigued about this industry and how complex it was. This huge business, right? $4 trillion, $3 trillion of volume being run on paper, manual processes lack of automation and so I'm like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity right you don't run across industries this large that have these kind of problems and have been relatively untouched by by technology and automation it costs more in the united states today to originate a mortgage than it costs toyota to build a car right and there's something wrong with that right that we can't create a financial asset for less than $10,000 so I I was pretty intrigued by that. You know, I I mentioned the fragmentation was attractive to be able to create a platform and and, and drive scale benefits for our customer scale capabilities. Um, And uh, and then I I went and I looked at, well, I said, you know, here was a PayPal. PayPal was an $80 billion company at the time. Uh, There's about five, $6 trillion a year in credit card payments in the US. So here we had an $80 billion company. Square at the time was 20 billion. I should have bought more Square stock. And uh, I said, well, there must be some huge, companies and mortgage, right? Huge tech companies running this 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 business. The biggest one I could find was seven billion. I'd never heard of them. The next one down was only three billion and that's it. And I'm like, wow, there's real opportunity again. And all they were doing was selling software. Nobody was really providing the infrastructure to run these businesses. So that was really what kicked it off. And why B2B? Because I didn't want a, a business selling to consumers <laughs> and and spending all my money on Google ads and Facebook and Facebook ads. So you know, I think B2B really is about how do we enable the people that are doing these things today and doing it well who already have the distribution, who already have the locations, who already have the brick and mortar. How do we just enable them to do it do it better? And, um, and and we can make them the heroes.
0: Let's dive deeper into Maxwell Maxwell's business. What product or service is your biggest source of revenue? Who are your key users and who do you compete against? Yeah, so we, we don't Share publicly about
1: revenue and and how revenue diversifies between our our different segments. But you know we we focus ultimately as a B two B business on the users at the institution. So loan officers, processors, underwriters, capital markets, the buyers tend to be CEO, COO, president, um, head of sales. Right, we're able to really enable their business. And so um, as I said, we have kind of those three pillars: right, software, back office capabilities, and capital. Um, and when we approach a bank, we're able to talk across our suite of products, depending on what their what their needs are. And so we wedge in with one of those products. And once we're in, we have a relationship. We start to cross sell and say, "Hey, you notice that you don't have X, and we can do that better for you than you're doing it today." And and uh, eventually, we're starting to really serve them and dramatically change, you know, their costs and their cost structure. So
0: last year, Maxwell raised more than $50 million in financing and was also named the 15th fastest growing software company in the U S what's the secret behind the success and how do you pick the right investors? I think those, those questions are are certainly
1: related. Um, And uh, I uh, think been extremely fortunate with the investors that we have around, um, around the board and around the the company uh, that have been with us, you know, mortgage is a cyclical business. Right. And so um, if you look back over the history of the mortgage injury, it, it tends to go up into the right over time, but any given year, it's very cyclical. And so, you know, we, we wanted to make sure we found investors that one were investing for the long term. And so, you know, I, I always emphasize this is not a three year sort of hit and return. We're building an infrastructure business that's changing how an industry works. That takes chapters. That takes time. And I think what we saw in the last couple of years, obviously was. Uh, a tremendous amount of volume pumping through the market. I mean, some of the biggest years we've ever seen in mortgage. We were fortunate as we were entering that to have just started building out our capabilities pillar. So we had the software pillar. We had just started before, uh, before 2020 building out our capabilities layer. And obviously that was a huge tailwind for us to build that business and become one of the largest um, back office providers in the United States today. And, uh, And that enabled us then to start the final pillar, which is the capital piece. So, you know i think whenever you're building a business there's a certain amount of strategy certainly that goes into it there's a certain amount of luck that goes into it uh, in terms of timing and what's happening in the macro environment we're experiencing the opposite right now right obviously which is a lot of pressure on our business i think we've prepared well for it we knew this was coming um and uh, have prepared our investors for it as well
0: yeah i noticed you also start in maxwell capital what does maxwell capital do and why enter the secondary market
1: so Maxwell Capital is a loan buyer, and so we buy loans that our clients originate, and then we trade them on the secondary market. And what we're doing effectively is giving our, our customers access to better pricing and better margin in their loan that we ultimately help, hope they pass back to their consumers to widen access to homeownership. Why do we do that? Well, if you look at why is, why is the mortgage process so hard, right? Why is it so expensive? Because the, the lender is trying to create a product that they can sell. They have to sell that loan after it's closed to an investment bank, to Wall Street, to Fannie, to Freddie. And all of those institutions have these guides that are about this thick, like 90 pages of what they to call guidelines, or requirements, or stipulations for the loan. Right? So what the lender is doing is it's making damn sure that that loan fits inside that box right? so that they can sell it. The reason all those things exist is because those buyers have lack of trust. I don't trust that you as a lender are saying that you know, Terang is who he says he is or works where he says he works or earns what he says he earns. And so I'm going to put all these other guidelines and requirements and restrictions on it. It's going to make you spend a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of time figuring out before I sell that loan. The reason we started Maxwell Capital is if we're the investor, we get to determine those requirements and those guidelines right and so the investor casts this long shadow over the the origination process that if we control that shadow we control the data that's going through origination we know we can create better quality higher quality loans we can buy those loans and sell them um, because we own the origination process itself you know for example we're we're able to go and get the data directly from terang's payroll company and validate his employment we don't need three years of pay stubs or three months of pay stub, sorry. We don't need months and months of bank statements. We can literally can connect his account. We can get validated, verified data, right? So that's just one example of how we can use access to data and modern technology to streamline that
0: process. One of the key elements to sustain long-term growth for any company is hiring the right talent. So my next question is, is Maxwell hiring? If yes, what do you look for in potential colleagues? Yeah, so definitely check out highmaxwell.com uh, slash company
1: slash careers. Uh, always happy to talk to folks that are looking, and if there's anybody listening that's looking for a summer internship next year, uh, happy to happy to to have folks drop me a line. And I was always looking for smart people looking to do uh, do internships. Um, you know what we look for. Uh, we have uh, five values. Uh, we call them our rocks: rigor, ownership, curiosity, kindness, and straight up rocks. And so um, when someone comes into the business, you know we hire based on our values. Um, we evaluate performance based on our values we fire when necessary based on our values and so that's that's really one of the most important things um, second is is just a hunger to to and that really uh, you know goes to our curiosity principle is like we're trying to figure out how to do something that's been happening this way for a long time where a lot of our target audience is stuck in their own ways right and we have to be incredibly curious and rigorous and courageous to go in there and figure out how do we start to meaningfully evolve what they're doing and so that that curiosity is particularly important in, in product and engineering as we as we look to evolve that
0: for the next segment i want to pick your brain on the fintech industry overall yeah so you, you have been involved in this industry for a long long time what do you think are the segments within fintech that are going to drive its growth for the next three to five years
1: well one, one thing that's interesting about fintech right is that it's you know, the, the, the rise and fall of different fintech companies is based a lot on consumer and business behavior. And so we've obviously gone through a very interesting cycle <laughs> in the last two years on both those points. Uh, we're obviously entering a very different cycle in the next two points. So um, I'm, I'm hesitant to give any investment advice. Let's put it that way on, on, on where it's going to go. I think, you know, for example, consumer spend we expect that to go down or to be moderated in an environment where we're going to recession, right? So in the long term, obviously continue to be very bullish on, 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 on payments um, as, a, as, a, as a meaningful area of growth. Um, wealth management, asset management right, is a very interesting area as we've seen the amount of capital uh, um, that, that folks have at their disposal today. Um, as saving rates are going are, have gone up and are going to continue to go up. So those are some examples of areas. Um, I think from a technology perspective, you know, continuing rise in automation and AI is really important. You know, financial services, whether it's insurance, whether it's uh, banking, whether it's mortgages or other types of loans, there's so much manual process, so much manual process, right? And you literally, I always like to joke the biggest innovation in mortgage is dual monitors, right? So you could have the PDF on one screen and you could enter the data in the screen on the right, right? And so how do you how do we start? actually pairing the power of technology with the human element. Right. Um, I always love what Steve Jobs says and compares, compares technology to the, the, the bicycle of the mind. Right. When, when um, uh, you know, the uh, um, one of the nature uh, magazines did this study to look at which animal can travel the fastest and the furthest with the least amount of, of energy um, output. They found that it was the condor by far and, and the human being, you know, the crown of creation was way down the list. Until you put them on a bicycle, and all of a sudden, it was the human that was the most efficient and productive. And so Steve Jobs talks about that as an example of computers, technology, or the bicycle of the mind, right? How do we accelerate human progress through that? So, automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning, very big part of what we do today and, and are going to be meaningful in the future of our industry. Secondly, as it comes to mortgage, it's about integrations and partnerships. Um, we see a lot of folks developing point solutions for particular problems in different industries. And um, I think we need platforms, right, that start to pull these solutions together into one cohesive solution for the customer so that they don't have to be forced to buy different solutions and try to cobble them together themselves.
0: On the flip side, do you think there are any segments within FinTech that you're bearish on, or do you think they are past their hype days? Yeah, I think what we
1: saw, um, what we've seen over the last decade are basically companies that are called FinTech that are trying to do basically the same business as um, you know, an incumbent insurance company or an incumbent lender. Um, and they're just basically applying you know, more digital-oriented customer acquisition. I'm not as hot on that. I think it's hard to replicate an you know, insurance company that's been doing and has been managing risk for decades and has all those risk models and sophistication. That's hard. That's that's really hard to replicate. And until you can get to that scale. Can you really be that successful and, and minimize your downside risk? So I, I tend to be more bearish on on folks that are just replicating existing models rather than saying, you know, if we're lo- really looking for transformation,
0: sometimes it's about enabling the people that are doing it today to do it differently. For our last segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more of a person to our listeners. So my first question for you is, what's a fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: The so fun fact about me is I have alone, probably the equivalent of just shy of a hundred times around the earth. Um, not literally around the earth, but if you count the number of miles that my foot has been in a seat in an airplane, um, it's added up to that much. So um, I'm proud to maintain, uh, you know, airline status on, on all three major alliances uh, uh, there. So that's one, you know, I've always, I've always traveled. I, I grew up overseas. Um, I have international parents and you know, being being on an airplane and earning
0: miles has just been part of my life for a really long time. You sound like a executive. <laughs> <So, laughs> Status miles on all, all big airplanes. Yeah, it was, it's like that. what
1: is that that uh, up in the air? Was that that movie where they like sit down and they show all their cards to each other at the table?
0: It's kind of funny. Yeah. If you could go back in time, let's say fifteen years, what advice would you give to your younger John? Um, I think being patient.
1: Um, you know, I graduated undergrad in '01 and my dream had been to go to silicon valley and be part of the tech revolution and here i graduated just as everything was dot dot crashing right and um ended up going a very different path and uh you know it led me back to my core passion right and so i think you know if you're really passionate about something and and you know you can't get into a specific job or you can't get it, you know you eventually find your way into into a deeper passion i was just talking to one of my best friends actually He and I were just catching up the other day and he applied to be an intern at this company and um, he got turned down. So this was in college and he went off and got his, you know, uh, master's and PhD and ended up doing a bunch of the things. Well, now he's the CEO of that company. So it kind of has come full circle, uh, you know, 25 years later uh, that he's the CEO. And we were just joking about that. And I think that's important to remember that if you don't achieve your little dream, uh, of getting that perfect job, you know, or of getting that, you know, uh, consulting job that you've always dreamed for. Um, it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, th- things have a way of coming around and, and and working themselves out. So just be patient.
0: Could you talk to us a bit more about the startup ecosystem in Denver and Austin and such other cities that are popping up? Do you feel that still most of the capital and innovation will stick to New York and San Francisco where it has historically been? Or with the talent outflowing to the smaller city, is going to reach an equilibrium where all the cities are driving growth.
1: Yeah, it's completely changed. I think um, since I, you know, started Maxwell. I would say back in 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 2015 when we founded the company, you know, you'd run into investors in San Francisco that said we only invest in companies in San Francisco, we only invest in companies in New York, right? And I I haven't heard that in in years because I think you know those investors realize there's amazing stuff happening everywhere, right and Candidly, I think they kind of liked the pandemic because they could distribute capital over Zoom and it was very efficient. Um, didn't have to offer anybody a kind bar or water or, or go to the office, right? And uh, I think that's incredibly meaningful. And so you know, it's gotten a lot easier to raise capital if you're in the middle of the country and, and, and investors now realize the quality of the talent that's there, right? Um, uh, you know, the Denver startup ecosystem is phenomenal. I think what attracted us here was the level of collaboration. I always felt in the valley there's very much a secretive nature to startups like this is my little thing this is my little secret don't look in my box and you, know, you even even with your friends you'd say what are you working on and they're like, i can't tell you you know whereas in denver everybody's here to help one another out and um you know i can literally ping a ceo of another series B, C, D company i never met them they'll answer my email hang out, grab a coffee um give each other advice i mean it's It's that kind of kind of ecosystem, which is really special, Um, you know, and and you get to know them as well. Right. Because it's a smaller group. You're on the same panels together at Denver Startup Week. You're seeing each other at the startup events and uh, you really develop a great community. And I think that's what's that's what's different in a place like San Francisco where there's so many startups here. There's less, but the, the quality of the connections and the relationships and the people just make it that much stronger.
0: What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those who have been in the industry for, let's say, 10 to 15 years? That is, they have a higher opportunity cost starting up as compared to a college graduate. I resemble that remark, I guess.
1: Uh, you know, I think the conversation with my wife, we had one child at that point. Where I, had, I, I had been working at that point for out of college for 15 years, you know, excluding the two years MBA. And uh, um, we had one kid. And we're kind of like, it's now or never. Right. Um, you know, we'd built a little bit of a nest egg. It wasn't like amazing, but it was enough to feel like, Hey, we can go give this a shot and see what happens. Um, that all, it only gets harder. Right. And so I think one thing that made a difference for me and my co-founders is that we went all in. This wasn't like, Hey, we're just going to try doing this on the side while we're working. We went all in like, this was it. And you know, there, there's a lot of hard days and hard weeks and hard months when you're starting a company. And when it's what you're betting on and you're betting your family uh, livelihood on, you figure out how to make it work. You know, And um, I think that's helped us collectively. We've all been on that same page. And that's really helped us as co-founders to keep us focused on, we're going to make this work uh, no matter what.
0: How do you manage being an entrepreneur with family time and I mean, like social time with friends and family, as well as taking care of your own self. It's probably in that order. Uh,
1: and so, you know, uh, my company is called Maxwell. Uh, people like to joke, I love my fake child, Maxwell, more than my real children. But I love my real children in case they're listening far more. But I think, you know, it's all about, it's all about um, drawing boundaries. And um, I, I don't believe there is such a thing as work-life balance. Um, that's just a fictitious word. You're never in balance. What it means is sometimes you're heavy in one, sometimes you're light in the other. You know, For example, my wife now knows between August and about this time, I'm pretty much gone every week. Right? We've got trade shows, we've got customers, we have a ton of renewals in the fall because people tend to sign contracts when things slow down in the mortgage industry. They're working on systems. So all the renewals come up now. Um, we're doing all our planning. We've got offsites, right? Like So between August and November, it's just, I'm gone. And she knows that and we kind of make that work. Um, And so just finding those balances, right? You know, I I had the opportunity this summer. We have a policy that you can take a month sabbatical every five years. Um, I took it in year seven, so waited a couple of years. But it was amazing to disconnect. Tell my co-founder you're in charge. uh, Good luck. And just disconnect for 30 days. And that was, my family was 100% the priority then. I come hell or high water. And so there's going to be times where you prioritize one and the other. I'm home every night that I can which is almost every single night for dinner time, bath time, and bedtime. Um, and so we put our kids to bed at 7 and between you know 5.30ish five, five and 7 p.m., fully dedicated to my family. And then typically I'm logging back in at that point to catch up on my inbox
0: and do other things. On that note, I'll let you go and enjoy your Friday evening. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Vought in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Walton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.